Good morning. I'm all in. Are you all in? Awesome. If you've ever seen the movie Karate Kid, the original, not the remake, then you know it's about a young man named Daniel LaRusso who moves to a new town and he struggles to fit in. He encounters a group of guys who are really good at martial arts and they seem to rather enjoy trying their moves out on Daniel LaRusso. And finally, at one point, he gets fed up with being bullied. And so he enlists the help of a wise old gentleman by the name of Mr. Miyagi, who is very skilled in the martial arts. And so he convinces Mr. Miyagi to train him after Mr. Miyagi convinces him to sign up for the All-Valley Karate Championships. And Mr. Miyagi's training is rather unconventional. And Daniel is not too excited about it. It involves waxing his car collection, painting Mr. Miyagi's fence, sanding his floors. And finally, Daniel gets so fed up, he's ready to quit. And that's when Mr. Miyagi unveils the method to his madness. It turns out that all of these different moves that were employed to wax the car, to paint the fence, to sand the floors, all those moves were vital in learning how to defend oneself when it comes to karate. You know, sometimes you have to see the end before you can see the beginning. We have that luxury when it comes to Scripture. We can read it, and I think we should read it, with the ending in mind. But that wasn't the case for those who were living the story that we're reading. Actually, it kind of was the case. They knew what the law and the prophets had said. The law and prophets pointed to a completion to the story, but they couldn't always see it. Plus, there's a huge difference in someone telling you how things are going to play out and you actually experiencing them for yourself I have no doubt that if you and I were a Jew living in the time of the Law and the Prophets or living in the time that Jesus roamed the earth, we would struggle with the story as well, even though we know what the Scripture stated. We struggle with the story today. Some choose to live under the old law, preferring the shadow rather than the reality. Some disown the Old Testament altogether, saying that it is irrelevant for us today and has no bearing on anything that we do today. Some read the Bible as if it's a rule book. Some read it devotionally. Some treat it as if it's Siri. Some treat it like a bag of trail mix, picking out the parts they like, discarding the rest. Some simply struggle to make sense of it all. Let me ask you a question, and stick with me on this. How many of you like bacon? I mean, who, who doesn't like bacon, right? Everybody likes bacon. But should you really be eating bacon Listen to this, and the pig, for though it has a divided hoof, and so it shows a split hoof, it does not chew cud, it is unclean to you. So how many of you have already sinned this morning? How many of you have already eaten bacon? The Bible says don't eat bacon. You eat bacon? Well, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it, right? I've heard Christians say that over and over again. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. End of discussion. In Leviticus chapter 19, we find these instructions. You are to keep my statutes 
You shall not crossbreed two kinds of your cattle, and you shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment of two kinds of material mixed together. Most of you, if not all of you, have violated that command this morning by wearing something that is made up of more than one type of thread. Many of you need to repent, right? Because, hey, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. But then comes the response, right? Well, that was the Old Testament. We're not under the old law. We are New Testament Christians, which means that all that really matters is what it says for us in the New Testament. And so we have two different lenses we're operating with. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And the second lens is, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, but only when it comes to the New Testament. There is another lens that you hear quite often, spoken among Christians. You speak where the Bible speaks, and you're silent where the Bible is silent. Good thought. Jesus never said that. Some guy did. But it's still a good thought, right? But the truth of the matter is, we speak where the Bible speaks, and where the Bible is silent, we've had a lot more to say over the years. The Bible says that I believe that that settles it, so long as we're talking about the New Testament. Okay, so none of you have ever greeted me with a holy kiss. Ever. And the Bible is clear. That is a direct command. Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 12, or 13, 12, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 26 are all direct commands to greet each other with a holy kiss. We know about direct commands. We teach and preach that direct commands are non-negotiable. They are to be followed at all costs. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it, right? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Don't get nervous as I read this, ladies. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or expensive apparel, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So ladies, no braided hair, no expensive jewelry, no pearls, no gold. I mean, it says it right here, right? And just before this, we have another direct command that I rarely see followed. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and dispute. So what are we to do with these passages? Well, hopefully you understand what I'm getting at here. There is a cultural context that we have to consider. And we have to understand that these words were written to somebody else before they were written to us. And that makes a difference on how we apply them to our lives, right? We have two lenses here. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, but only when it comes to the New Testament. But hopefully, you see that we have problems with both of these lenses. Then there's the problem of filtering everything through Western eyes. We tend to read Scripture in our own when and where and in a way that makes sense in our terms instead of seeking what the passage would have meant to the original hearers and then asking the question, how does this apply to me? There's a really good book out there called Reading Scripture Through Western Eyes, and the authors state this. They say, we can easily forget that Scripture is a foreign land and that reading the Bible is a cross-cultural experience. You've heard me say it over and over again. The Bible was not written to you. It was written for you, but it wasn't written to you. And therefore, we do a great disservice to the text when we read it with Americanized filters rather than seeking to understand the culture, the context, the history, and the people who were hearing it for the first time. Now, over the years, 
we have attempted to resolve the conflict and lessen the confusion by employing various hermeneutical models. You know what hermeneutics is? It's the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation. And everyone interprets. I've heard Christians say, well, I don't interpret. I just, I just read the Bible. No, you interpret. Everybody does. There's no getting around it. You interpret. Everyone does. Everyone interprets. You cannot not interpret. So the question becomes, well, how should we interpret? What hermeneutical model should we be using? And over the years, traditionally, we have used CINI. You ever heard of CINI? C-E-N-I. And it stands for Command, Example, and Necessary Inference. It's a good hermeneutic. It's not a perfect one. It's inconsistent. It's confusing at times. It breeds proof texting. And inferences are tricky because they're debatable. They're not binding. They're man-made. But overall, it's a good model. Another model F. Lagarde Smith came up with a few years ago is purpose, principle, and precedent. So in purpose, you're asking the question, what is the purpose of this passage under consideration? And then principle, you don't just focus on the command, you focus on the intent. And then precedent, the question is not, do we have an example? The better question is, do we have an example that should be considered authoritative? And just recently, a couple of guys by the name of J. Scott Duvall and J. Daniel Hayes presented a method that they call the interpretive journey. And this includes these steps. You grasp the text in their hometown. In other words, you see what the original audience was hearing. You try to discern what it is that they are being told. Who is it that is listening to it for the first time? Then you move to crossing the river of culture. What are the differences between the original audience and us? And then, of course, you need a bridge, which is the principle. What is the principle involved? Consult the biblical map. How does the theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? And then finally, you grasp the, ta- uh, the, the, the uh, text in our town. What does this mean for us? How is application for us? I've been asked, so Chris, what hermeneutical model do you use? All of them. All of these. Because they all overlap. They all bleed into one another at some point. Cine is good. Has some real problems. I still think it has some real benefit. I like the purpose, precedent, principle method. I think it's a fresh way of looking at the commands. I think it simplifies application. And that's the number one goal of Bible study is application. you got to answer the question, so what? And so you got to find the purpose and how it applies. The principle and how it applies. The interpretive journey, though, is a good one as well. I like what these guys are doing with it. But the truth of the matter is they all overlap and bleed in to one another. We just have to recognize that there is no purely objective biblical interpretation. There will always be biases. That doesn't mean we can't know truth. You've got to know truth. You've got to land on truth. Truth is knowable. God made it knowable. We have to know truth. We have to land on truth. At some point, you, you've got to land the plane. You can't stay up in the clouds. You've eventually got to land the airplane. That is paramount when it comes to Bible study, is landing the plane. And landing the plane is about asking the question, what is God saying? That's the number one question when it comes to Bible study. What is God saying? Not what do I want God to say. Too many ask that question. What is the Bible saying? And here's something else. This is big. If I die tomorrow, hopefully you'll remember this above anything else, and I'm going to keep preaching this until I die, and it's this. Don't miss the story. The Bible is a story, and to read it any other way is to miss the whole point. It's kind of like this guy that was playing checkers with a monkey in the park, and a crowd started to gather, 
And they were highly impressed by this monkey that could play checkers. And finally, the gentleman gets upset. He's frustrated, and he yells out, I don't know why you're impressed with him. I've beaten him seven out of ten times. The guy had missed the point. Don't miss the point. To understand Scripture and to accurately apply it to our lives, we have to view it through the proper lens. What is the proper lens? Simply put, it's this. Jesus. If you view all of Scripture through the lens of Jesus and the cross, you got it. As a friend of mine likes to say, it's a cruciform hermeneutic, a cruciform approach to Scripture, filtering everything through the cross and through Jesus. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5. All that set up to get to our lesson this morning. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever nullifies one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's a question for you. How did Jesus interpret scripture? I think that's a valid question. Because if we can figure out how Jesus interpreted scripture, then certainly that would be the model to follow. And right here in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, really verse 17 is what you need to look at, he gives us his hermeneutical model. Look at it. Do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And I wonder what the people hearing this the first time must have thought. Okay, so Jesus, you didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but your teachings kind of seem to be geared towards abolishing the law and the prophets. I mean, blessed are the persecuted, turn the other cheek, the broken are blessed. I mean, that doesn't sound a whole lot like the rest of Scripture or the Scriptures that we've had up to now. But when Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, understand he's talking about the entire Old Testament. When he says the law and the prophets, he's talking about the entire Old Testament. And he's saying, I didn't come to abolish it. And the word he uses for abolish here refers to unhinging the yoke from the ox. And Jesus is basically saying, you think that my teaching is about unhinging you or disconnecting you from the law, but that's not the case. Rather, I came to fulfill everything from Genesis to Malachi. The word fulfill here means to fill to absolute capacity, like filling a glass of water all the way up to the brim. But it can also mean taking to an appointed destination. So in essence, Jesus is saying, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to unhinge you from the law. I came to take you the rest of the way. The law could only take you so far. I came to take you all the way to the destination. The law was never meant to be an end in and of itself. It was never meant to take you to the destination. That's where I come in. I am here to take you all the way. He is the rest of the story. He is the fulfillment of the story. He is the resolution of the story. There was always a to-be-continued aspect to the law, and Jesus is the continuation and the fulfillment of the story. Now look at Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Now he said to them, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All things which are written about me must be fulfilled. Okay, so what kind of things are we talking about? Well, Isaiah revealed the manner in which the Messiah would be born. 
Micah pinpointed the location of the Messiah's birth. The book of Genesis and the prophet Jeremiah specify the Messiah's ancestry. The Psalms foretold of the Messiah's betrayal, accusation by false witnesses, manner of death, and resurrection. Noah's deliverance through obedience and water foreshadows our deliverance through obedience and baptism. Moses is God's physical deliverer who points forward to a spiritual deliverer. King David is a shadow of the ultimate king who would set up his kingdom. Boaz redeemed Naomi and Ruth. He took them from exile and famine back to the promised land, so he was a shadow of the great redeemer. God raised up Esther to save his people. She was willing to sacrifice her life on behalf of the Hebrews. Esther points forward to the Messiah. There is an obvious picture of Jesus that is painted with Abraham willing to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, on the altar in the region of Moriah, which means the Lord will provide. That's the same region in which God held nothing back and sacrificed his son for the sins of the world. It all points to Jesus, all of it. Jesus read scripture in the first person. He is the narrator of the story, telling the story from his own point of view. If you go to Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah chapter 61, starting in verse 1, it reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. You can jump over to Luke chapter 4. We won't read it. But in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue and he stands up to teach in front of these scribes, and these Pharisees, these religious leaders. And he reads from the Isaiah scroll. He reads... Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Verses that the religious leaders would have been very familiar with. They would have been shaking their head in agreement as Jesus is reading it. They knew all about Isaiah's words and they knew all about the picture that Isaiah was painting. The problem was the picture they had in mind was very different than the picture Isaiah was painting. And Jesus tells them, look, I'm the picture. I'm the fulfillment of all of this. Everything that you're reading here, it's me. I'm here in the flesh. The Messiah is here. Everything you read about in the Old Testament, everything that was preached, the fact that I would be born of a virgin woman and live in Nazareth, be beaten, bruised, betrayed, yet not one bone be broken, all of it pointed to me. I am the Son of God. I am the suffering servant. I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah, the Christ. He's here. You're looking at him. Jesus says the Old Testament was the black and white. I've noticed that the History Channel has been showing footage from World War II in color and in HD. Have you seen that? 
and they have taken never before seen footage and they've colorized it and they've put it in high def. Really interesting if you ever watch any of it. It's exactly what Jesus did. The old law was black and white and Jesus put color to it. He brought it to high definition. Have you noticed how Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount are colorized versions of the old commands? You ever notice that? Let me, let me give a few to you. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be answerable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be answerable to the supreme court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Here's another one, Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not show opposition against an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other toward him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Jesus isn't abolishing the law. He's taking the law, which was always meant to be spiritual, but was turned into something rote and mechanical, he's bringing it back to life. He's adding color to it. Over and over again, he says, you've heard it was said. You've heard it was said. Let me give you the rest of the story. Jesus is the rest of it. He is not abolishing the law. He's fulfilling it. The Old Testament, Old Testament is the gospel in bud. The New Testament is the gospel in bloom. In other words... Jesus is the law with skin on it. Do I need to just throw this thing out? I'll stay here. So, when my daughter was in junior high, she decided she wanted to play the baritone. Don't know why, but she chose to play the baritone. And for a while, when she would come home and practice, sounded like a dying cow. Those of you who had kids in band know what I'm talking about. She was trying to learn the scales and the valve keys and everything. And eventually she did. Eventually she learned it. You know, the goal was never for her to learn how to play the scales, though. That was never the goal. The goal was for her to get good enough so that she could add to the overall harmony of the band. So that she could play her part beautifully so that the band would perform beautifully, so that they could take that piece of music and bring it to life. And that is exactly what Jesus did with the law. The law is sort of like playing the scales, but Jesus came to make it a part of the overall composition. The beauty of the scales is that it adds to the music that is being played. You see, the goal is not the law and the prophets. The old law wasn't just about obeying some commands. That wasn't the goal. The goal was to teach us how to live in harmony with God and others, moving from the scales to beautiful music. As we close, I want to refer back to our signature passage one more time. Look at it with me. Do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, 
I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For I truly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever nullifies one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see what Jesus is doing here? He says, unless your righteousness, he's telling these people, unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't enter heaven. And they must have been thinking, well, then there's no hope. They would have killed to be at the level of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were at the pinnacle of righteousness. But Jesus says, no, they're not. Now, there's a gap there. And the gospel fills in the gap. That's the story. The gospel is the story. Jesus is the hero of the story. It's not about being conformed to a set of rules. It's about being transformed by a person. The law was never meant to push people toward better behavior. That would come. The law was initially meant to push people toward a person. To see that the light was coming. That Jesus would be the completion, the fulfillment of the story. So, I encourage you this morning, don't be like the guy playing checkers with a monkey. Don't miss the obvious. Don't miss the point of the story. Be a part of the story by letting the hero rescue you. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the story, for Scripture. We thank you for truth. We thank you that it is knowable, and we thank you that there is hope. And as we seek to live by your commands, we pray that we always seek the relationship first and let that change us. May we always choose you, loving you, loving others, and thus allowing that to motivate us to obey the commands. God, we thank you so much for this church family. We thank you so much for what you have meant to us. And may we go out and share the good news with others. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Well, you have a need this morning. I know from the first service that Don has a song. So he's going to lead a song. If we can help you this morning by praying with you. If you'd like to study the Bible with someone. Uh, if you'd like to be baptized this morning. Whatever your need is, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.